Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello everybody and welcome. It's Hugo Banziger. I'm the chairman of the association and I have the pleasure interviewing today Professor Harold James, a distinguished scholar and a colleague who has so many books uh, published over the last uh, few years that I can't even read the entire list. Harold holds the um, uh, chair as Claude and Laura Kelly Professor in Princeton, uh, is very well known on both sides of the Atlantic. And uh, to quote just a few of his works, he wrote about family capitalism, the creation and destruction of value, globalization cycles, such important issues like uh, the European Monetary Union and the battle of economics ideas. What we want to do today is talk a bit about uh, recent trends in banking history. Where is um, our faculty going? What are the topics which are interesting to research? What were the trends the last 10 years? And looking forward, what could be interesting uh, trends for the next uh, 10 years? So with this, Harold, I would like to hand the microphone over to you, and uh, we are all listening to what you have to tell us. Well, thank you, uh, Hugo. It's it's really great to be with you and uh, to talk about uh, the way in which banking history has developed. Uh, First of all, uh, there's been an enormous increase for obvious reasons in interest in financial history since the global financial crisis, since uh, 2007, 2008. Um, And so uh, really you see this everywhere in terms of uh, numbers of students, uh, books written, um, historians, general historians moving into uh, financial history, popular histories of financial institutions. Uh, it's it's uh, all over the place. Uh, if you ask me what I find personally the most exciting aspect of what's going on, I, I think actually it's going back further into the past um, and thinking about ways in which developments that we see today have actually been anticipated. And some of the problems uh, have been anticipated a long, long time ago. So we're looking now, if we think about it in the headlines, uh, we we see all these stories about the uh, collapse of uh, Greensill Capital. Um, And we think supply chain finance is something terribly, terribly new. This was the idea, this was the great novelty that Greensill was supposed to be coming up with. Um, But actually, it looks to me as if it's the oldest thing in the world. It's it's a version of the trade finance that took place in the Middle Ages, and really there are already anticipations of this in the Roman Empire or even in Mesopotamia. Uh, But the the classical trade finance of the Middle Ages um, and looking at the bill of exchange, that's something that a lot of people are now going back to and uh, looking at. And um, I I find it absolutely fascinating in that that regard. That's very interesting what you're saying, that uh, looking further in the past uh, gets us uh, to a very modern, most recent uh, subject sometimes. I, I think looking at today's capital markets, I see similar trends with, um, let's say, institutional investors. So today, in today's world, 
when you look, uh, for instance, who is the big lender in the United States, it's not the banks anymore. It's uh, institutional investors who, through technology platform, can distribute uh, <clears throat> all uh, the loans to, uh, to individual holders. That's a model that looks quite similar to how, I'd say, the Venetian bankers worked at the time. They didn't take principal positions, but the family members or the members of many families were actually holding stakes. Is that something that you're seeing too, that we are more or less returning through technology into an old form of banking or maybe a proven form of banking where risk is distributed much further than it was when it was concentrated in banks? Well, yes, I think that's right. Uh, the, uh, the, the bank itself is a little bit of a peculiar institution and um, it's, it's, it's inherently uh, full of risk and that um, you know, the, the classic model of, of banking or you know, the way that we try to put it in textbooks is that we have an institution that uh, takes deposits um, that can be returned uh, immediately um, but that it makes long-term investments. And so you can see how this kind of institution, uh, if it does maturity transformation like this, is really set up for a panic uh, if you get some kind of unanticipated event. Um, and you know, what, what I think uh, you, you're, you're saying is, 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 is absolutely right, that there were very, very sophisticated uh, societies with uh, very sophisticated degrees of financial intermediation that didn't depend on this maturity transformation model of banking. And if you think of um, uh, Venice or the uh, Netherlands in the early modern period, uh, they had banks, of course, um, and the banks did uh, clearing transactions and they did Giro and uh, so on. They, they were Doing, doing payments in the business of making payments, um, but they weren't in the business of uh, this, uh, this maturity transformation. And that was really something I think that was developed, maybe a bit simple to say this, but it, it, it was in, in uh, 17th century England uh, that, that really took off with the goldsmith bankers in, in, in London um, who, who worked out that they could take deposits um, and that their customers weren't likely to want the deposits. And so they then started to issue certificates um, that were in effect credit instruments. So, you know, I, th I think you're right that with, with technology, um, we can actually get really much more sophisticated, but in a way simpler products and uh, that we're, we're likely to see that. I mean, I think, you know, in, in some ways, um, you, know, you compare Europe and the United States, um, the United States is a much less bank-centric uh, economy than Europe is. And you know, I think when you're thinking of the vulnerabilities over the last uh, 15 years or so in Europe, uh, I mean, they largely result from the fact that Europe is, is so heavily focused on banks. Um, in the United States, um, capital markets play a much bigger role. Um, and the, the consequence is that a, a big problem in the banking system is not such a problem for the general economy. It, it also, the crisis in Europe also had an interesting effect in uh, the globalization of banks. So during, 
during my career, I saw the rise and then uh, the fall against of global banks. When you think about how important Japanese banks were for a while in the 80s, today you hardly see them in international capital markets. Um, the English banks were very global, they are not anymore. The Deutsche Bank, when I was, was very global, it's not that much anymore. So the only global institutions that uh, we experience today are the Chinese for other reasons and the Americans. Do you think so in what you have seen in globalization that these waves uh, are just a pattern of history and uh, we are going to see them again and again or will globalization of finance be a long-term trend that at one point will establish itself? I think it's very difficult to operate a really, really global bank and uh, or at least to operate a very big global bank. And, um, you know, I, I, I too am fascinated by the story that you just presented of how if you looked at the list of the world's biggest banks in the 1990s, uh, they would be headed by uh, Japanese banks. Um, and uh, the, 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 there's a kind of penalty uh, to pay for business. Um, if you think about the experience of different American banks during the financial crisis, uh, Citibank, which was, it was a city group, which was there in the, the, the largest number of countries, was really also the most vulnerable. And it's, I, I think it's easy to think why that should be the case, because you know, you're vulnerable for all kinds of reasons. Your capital is at stake, but you've got reputational risk. Um, and there is something that can happen if you're in over 100 countries, uh, you can be blown up uh, in, in you know, City Citibank uh, had these famous problems in, in Tokyo. Um, it, it's very, very difficult to organize a really good managerial system uh, to, to keep track of that. And um, it, in some ways, it goes back to what you were saying before, uh, that marketizing more of this um, is a way of reducing vulnerability. But you know, if you, if you come now to the, the present discussion, if you look at the world's largest banks, the Chinese banks, and uh, the, the, that to me actually is a, is a warning sign um, that, that maybe they're running the same kind of risks and they're likely to come into the same kind of difficulty as Japanese mega banks did in the past or uh, British or uh, Swiss or American uh, mega banks did. That's very interesting. So yeah, hearing you talking about these uh, long-term trends and um, that they repeat themselves, that also means banking history uh, has interesting uh, lessons to tell us. A lot of, of it depends on the, um, the access to bank archives and primary source materials. So what I appreciated in many of your books is that you give readers access to primary sources, which we otherwise don't see. So is, do you think banks do enough to maintain their archives, to document what they do? Or is that still a, a major challenge for, for our work as bank historians? Oh, I, I, I think very much it's 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 a major challenge. Um, uh, you know, th th there's basically a problem with a a, a lot of um, financial history and uh, thinking about financial history, in that um, we have a different record base. If you think of um, 
for instance, uh, farming uh, or any kind of landholding, it's really important to document the fact that you own a farm, um, uh, that you own a piece of land. And uh, we can go back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years and look at these records. But if you have a loan, uh, if you're a commercial institution uh, credit and it's paid off, um, basically that, that process is no longer interesting to you. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult and expensive to keep the documentation of it. Um, so we always find, I think, that uh, banking records are, are patchier. In public institutions, um, uh, central banks uh, often keep, uh, keep a better documentation. Um, I, I, I think one of the fascinating things you can do is in, in London to look at the, the ledgers of the Bank of England. So all the transactions are carried out in these enormous handwritten ledgers in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and today uh, we're moving into a kind of different problem in that uh, the record keeping is electronic, uh, so it doesn't take up a lot of, of bulk. But on the other hand, we have technologies for reading that that get obsolete, so it's, it's sometimes difficult to read electronic records that were created 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, the, the, the system interoperability um, cr creates uh, all kinds of problems. And then in addition to that, uh, there are the obvious questions with banking history of customer confidentiality. So, um, you know, I think um, uh, you know, if it's uh, 50 years ago uh, or 100 years ago and the uh, participants uh, uh, either, either dead or very, very old. Um, we don't worry so much about it, but um, in, in, in the recent period, um, uh, it's, it's, it's really a great problem. So it's, I think, very difficult to, to write very recent uh, banking history. I mean, you know, one, one very obvious example, uh, there's, a, there's a very nice, uh, beautifully done, um, uh, elegantly produced a history of Deutsche Bank, um, but it doesn't doesn't talk. Uh, there's no mention at all of uh, Deutsche Bank's most famous customer, Donald Trump, um, and uh, you know, that's all over the newspapers. There are many many um, accounts of, of uh, Trump and why Trump goes to Deutsche Bank rather than to American banks, but. Um, but that doesn't appear in the history at all. And I can see why that is. I mean, it's for legal reasons. It's, it's to protect customer confidentiality. But it means that writing recent history is just very, very hard. That is very interesting that you say that, Harold. Uh, I was a member of Deutsche Bank's uh, board. And I know the, the story that you, um, that you um, allude to um, by heart. But uh, I also know my legal obligations. I never allowed during my lifetime to talk about it. And that's probably one of the big problems is this uh, banking history that uh, confidentiality needs to be retained as long as people people live. But coming back on, uh, on, on electronic archives, um, I remember when we took the decision in the board that it's too complicated to throw or to delete material. So we decided that given that storage space 
was uh, was was becoming more and more <clears throat> uh, affordable to keep everything. So since uh, we took the decision in 2008, so Deutsche Bank has a complete record of everything that ever was done in digital form since 2008. Do you, do you think our problem as bank historians is going to change from having very little material to have way too much that so that we drown the sea of information? I mean, that's, that's obviously an enormous issue. Uh, how is any one person or group of people really going to deal with this? Um, and you see, I think, some kind of response to it already um, that some historians or some analysts are thinking of ways around this problem. For instance, um, if, you, if you want to study the Federal Reserve, it, 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 it's not even a question there of having an immense number of emails or of documents, but just uh, reading all the published documentation uh, is, is really uh, just a tremendous job. And so what happens is that um, the solution is you use machines instead and you say, let's just count the number of times people talk about inflation uh, in uh, open market committee uh, meetings. Um, uh, how often they talk about deflation. Uh, it, it, it's, it's easy to, uh, to do this. I mean, I, you, you know, I find those kind of exercises fascinating. I was just looking at um, you know, a completely different example of how often the word progress compares to crisis comes up in British publications compared to German or French publications. And until the middle of the 1960s, uh, progress is everywhere in American publications and there's little discussion of crisis, but it's the other way around in France and Germany. And uh, then since the 1960s, there's more discussion of crisis. Uh, and you know, that's not from reading every book, that's just from getting a program called Google Ngrams uh, to do the counting for you. It, uh, but uh, you know, it's clearly not going to give that degree of insight into motivation. Uh, that uh, we get when we read the letters. When I was working on history of Deutsche Bank in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, I read the correspondence and you can see people describing how they're feeling, what they're thinking. Um, and that kind of world is going to be harder and harder to reconstruct from emails. I mean, we, we say different things also in emails um, than we do uh, when we write these long letters that uh, financial actors used to, used to engage in. I couldn't agree more. So the uh, email communication has changed the, um, the way we communicate uh, with each other fundamentally. It's very factual. It's very often used to, um, to just solve a problem. Therefore, you have an abundance of back and forth and very seldom the real motives are expressed in, in their Coming back to something else that I wonder how we, we catch up with is looking back at the last 30 years. So we have seen a tremendous change in banking. So, so 30 years ago, the derivative industry barely started. Today, it's fully fledged risk transfer is easily possible. We have exchanges who do that. Uh, our retail banking is very different. Uh, today we do our banking on an iPhone. Who would have thought about that 
I remember uh, as a young person that uh, an uh, ATM was uh, something new to me. And uh, <clears throat> we have the whole rise of institutional investors, uh, which we haven't seen uh, uh, to, uh, to this uh, extent, or the role that central banks uh, play in today's economy is very different. Do you think as, 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 um, as a profession, bank historians will be able to shed light on this fundamental transformation. I, I believe banking will never go back to, to what it was uh, 30 years ago. We, we live now in a very different uh, area. Yes, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right about that, that the, um, the, the, the landscape is transformed. And um, you know, to some extent also, I think you could say that the past has lessons here in that, um, if you're thinking, for instance, about writing about the, uh, the world of British finance in the 19th century, um, it's not really a good idea to take one institution. Um, this was a very segmented kind of market. There were specialists, discount houses and merchant banks, and uh, then the big uh, clearing banks and the central bank and the stockbrokers and the stock jobbers. Um, and describing the world of the city is to describe a world of interconnections. Um, and you know, in some ways that's different to the late years of the 20th century, where I think it does probably make sense to write about Citibank or Deutsche Bank or UBS. Um, but we're, we're going back, and this is one of the themes of this discussion, we're, we're going back to this world in which really what the interest lies in is in the interconnections, how a system is built up. Um, and uh, th that really can't be dealt with, I think, by thinking about just the story of one institution. You need to show how the institution is located in this uh, dense network of interactions and how the how the interactions actually operate. Uh, so th that's an additional difficulty that just pouring through the papers of one bank or one institution is not going to do it. Um, just going back to the email point though, uh, for, for one moment, if I may, um, in, indeed, uh, you know, how people talk about issues in emails uh, changes. Uh, you remember the big scandal a few years ago uh, when it was revealed that somebody in, um, in, a, in a New York bank had been talking about the naive European banking customers as muppets that they could sell um, risky paper to offload risky paper. And uh, then uh, there was a big exercise in just trawling through everybody's email account to see how often the word Muppet appeared. And it of course appeared very often, uh, not because people were really talking about their customers as Muppets, but because they were talking about the children's television show and uh, they're, they're kind of nattering about all kinds of um, trivial everyday things. And you know, that's the, that's the kind of uh, information that I'm, I'm not sure that we really need in order to reconstruct exactly how a financial system, how a banking system uh, operates. We indeed live in a world of, of contradictions. Uh, when you think though, the reason why all these um, um, things became public knowledge was uh, because of uh, the lawsuits and therefore you have uh, uh, email disclosure to an extent which uh, was never before. We had leaks uh, 
where certain information which was private for the longest time uh, uh, became public knowledge. None of that ever happened to a letter that Hermann Ops, the, the, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, would have written to a colleague in industry. He knew that this letter would uh, remain private for, for decades to come, so therefore they could express uh, private uh, judgment in it, which they thought were not for public consumption. I think that's also something that limits us today. People are very careful in putting their real um, motivation into um, electronic communication because they fear that uh, it could be disclosed and in a context which they can't control and they, they don't want it to be seen. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, although, to be fair, I, I think that always is a problem in that... Um, you know, if, if you would, for instance, look at uh, these uh, late medieval transactions in Florence and the Datini archive is beautifully, beautifully done, um, but uh, they're very, very factual and uh, they don't talk about uh, their motivations or their idea of the world. Um, and in a sense, they don't need to, because if you are interacting with a group of people who share the same kind of view, the same kind of uh, mental universe, there's no need to specify what that is. Uh, I don't need to set that out every time I talk to somebody. Uh, you know, we just feel that we operate in a, in a, in a, in a common area. Um, and uh, you know, so it's, it's always a historical problem that uh, the, the underlying motivation uh, can't really be arrived at very easily. And um, I think uh, it is something that we have to do today, but uh, is, is basically always there, is that you, you, you often really study financial history uh, by looking at the results, by looking at the outcome, um, and you see what's happened. And then you can infer from that what calculations might have been or what plausible motives might there have been, uh, but uh, they're rarely going to really be explicitly stated. So I, you know, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right about today's world. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea that Hammond Apps really set out his soul, um, uh, if he had a soul, um, very frequently uh, is, 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 is I, I, I think, difficult to imagine. You know, what does happen, though, is in moments of great crisis or great tension, um, uh, people do write about things. And so, uh, you know, for instance, when I was writing the history of Deutsche Bank, immediately after the Nazi seizure of power in, in January 1933, there is indeed a whole series of letters uh, which, which are really very, very fascinating in terms of their response to this big change. But in normal times, uh, there's no need for that. You, you, you don't need to express yourself so, so clearly. May I come back to something that you said before, um, when you alluded to the fact that um, <clears throat> just doing the history of individual institution will not give us the full picture. So in my view, the, the three driving forces of this fundamental uh, transformation in banking that we have seen was uh, technology, so that we can compute much faster, we can compute on a desktop, even complex uh, financial transactions. The second one is communication. So through fiber optics, all the markets are linked and everything can be done around the world in less than a split second. And the third one was deregulation. To your knowledge, is there the, does our profession cover these themes too? Are, are there people looking into this? Because they're really fascinating 
topics of innovation. So, yes, um, all those areas are, I think, uh, being investigated um, and uh, they, they play a prominent role in the, in the discussion, but uh, they occur in different ways. For, for instance, if we take the theme of deregulation, um, how does deregulation occur? Is it uh, driven by political decisions? For instance, there's a common narrative, I think, uh, that in the late 1970s, um, first of all, in the United States, uh, Jimmy Carter really changed course and got interested in the idea of deregulating the economy. In the UK in 1979, Mrs. Thatcher came into power. And so is this a kind of top-down process or is it really being driven by the possibilities and then the political elite has to react to that um, or is it being driven this is another one i think the um, if you if you take the story of big bang in the in the london city this really transformative event in 1986 um, it's 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 driven uh, of course in part by government decisions uh, but also it's the outcome of a, uh, a law case um, about the position of stock jobbers in, in the market. And uh, so, so you know, once you've got that legal decision, uh, then you push further. So I would add another instance, uh, another driver uh, to your story, uh, which is legalization. Um, uh, I mean, this is really a transformative experience. The legalization, it's, it's transformative. Um, and uh, central banks, for instance, the, the Bank of England uh, didn't employ lawyers until the 1990s. Um, but uh, you know, lawyers and after the financial crisis, lawyers are everywhere. So uh, we're thinking, I think, about the legalization of finance um, in, the, in the recent period. Legalization, right. So I think that's a very interesting aspects. Another thing that I think that happened is we benefit today uh, from an infrastructure which we didn't have in the 50s and 60s. When you look how exchanges work today, we can do transactions at such low cost that transaction costs for the management of portfolios become more or less irrelevant. Uh, the 30 years ago, uh, a portfolio manager had to carefully think about how to structure his portfolio so that the transaction costs wouldn't eat up um, his dividends. Today, that's no concern. And uh, therefore, active risk management or portfolio strategies can be pursued by, by investors, which was never possible before. I, I think uh, looking into how we got to this infrastructure, the history of our exchanges or the uh, which were the big initiatives, many were done, like uh, uh, the big pay international payment systems were all done in global cooperation. Um, that, that, that's a very fascinating part of history, too. Yes, I, 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 I absolutely. Um, but I, you, you know, I think uh, as well as that, uh, one very, very striking development is the rise, uh, I mean, it's also pushed by the technology of, uh, of tracking funds, uh, so of completely passive investment. Uh, and uh, you know, here 
th th this is driven by trying to reduce transaction costs, uh, but also reduce commissions. Um, and the logic of it is that uh, you, you might find, uh, you do find indeed a bigger and bigger movement into uh, these these, these uh, passive investment forms uh, because people just uh, want not to not to pay the commissions. Um, I, I think this is going to be a big development as well that is really transformative. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And um, one of the <clears throat> things we did at Deutsche Börse is making uh, the costs of trading futures and uh, options so low that um, it's basically an irrelevant uh, part of the entire management. So, um, the cost of uh, future <clears throat> is today 0.01 basis point uh, of the notional value. When you think about that, basically nothing and uh, disappears. Uh, I think it's very important. If I'm allowed, can I completely switch the, the, the subject to something else? So, um, going back a little bit in the past again. So we, we live now in the European Union, which um, has uh, unified around uh, its own currency, the euro. Um, but when we look into, not but, but looking back in the history, so not all currency unions that we have seen in history were really successful. And one of them uh, that I remember was the Latin currency Union, which fell apart in the in the first world world war rather violently, um, is there is there research going on in this area? To, to, so is there fundamental thinking about what it takes to make a, a currency union successful? Oh yes, I, I I mean I think this this was already a kind of burgeoning industry in the 1990s when the Europeans were moving into the currency union and uh, there was a lot of uh, looking for the lessons of history. Um, Michael Bordeaux, uh, Lars Yoning, um, yeah, then uh, Luca Einaudi did a really wonderful history of the uh, Latin Monetary Union. Um, so uh, you, you know, the, 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 the study of how, how currency unions can work and how they can fall apart, uh, I, I think is a, is a nicely integrated uh, bit of the literature. Um, but I, I, I think what is, what is probably less appreciated, but there also is some really nice historical work on that, is how relatively recent the alternative is, uh, national monies. Um, uh, that national monies are fundamentally a creation in most countries of the 19th century. Uh, again, there's a beautiful book on it uh, by Eric Halina, uh, Making National Money. Uh, but for instance, the United States, uh, we, we were uh, really operating with a lot of uh, Spanish coins um, until the middle of the 19th century. Um, the, 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 it's, it's a famous story of where the word dollar comes from. It uh, comes from the silver currency uh, minted in Bohemia in Joachimstal, uh, the Tala. Um, and then it's in the Spanish world as, as, as the, the, uh, the, the, the circulating all over the Spanish empire. And that, that came into the United States. Or in the 1860s in Germany, um, people just deplored the number of different coins that were circulating and the difficulty that 
everyday transactions faced in terms of the multiplicity of these, these coins. So uh, with national unification, uh, there came then a national coinage system, um, but actually the national coinage followed after the, the national unification. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things that history tells us is that, uh, that, that there's a plurality of ways of thinking about money. And uh, we shouldn't think that one form is eternal and that national currencies are uh, clearly there to last forever. I mean, you know, in a sense, you can take an analogy from other industries. Um, uh, you know, once upon a time, every country thought that it had to have a national airline. Um, that's an entirely ridiculous concept. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no sense in that. And, uh, you know, there may be, for exactly the same kind of reason, no sense at all in having national currencies on a big scale. Yeah, very true observation. I never thought about it in this way. The, the one, when, when I was at Lombard Audio, one of the things we did, we wrote a book about the bank and uh, um, we noticed that the bank was instrumental in borrowing from French uh, uh, history that um, the concept of a gold coin that had standard value for Geneva that later then became the gold coin from Switzerland, which formed the basis of the Swiss franc. So that's how these concepts of money moved uh, through history. And it took about 50 years from the concept of the, from the concept of the idea until it was really implemented with Swiss unification in, in 1847. Well, I mean, well, one of the things that, that I think is fascinating about the uh, pre-modern period is that uh, the word different coins and different monetary systems that were used in big transactions than were used in small transactions. So uh, the large scale transactions would be done in a gold-based coinage, uh, but wages are almost always paid in silver coins or often in really completely debased uh, kind of grubby uh, metal coins that, where you, you can't really see what the intrinsic value is. And uh, those monetary systems fluctuate against each other. So as the silver gold ratio changes, uh, the ratio of the wages paid compared to the price of wool or so will, will also fluctuate. Um, and uh, that, that you, you might think of it as a disadvantage. It creates uh, a lot of uncertainty, uh, but it also creates inbuilt flexibility in operating in multi-coinage systems, which is, was a standard part of the early modern worldview. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think does offer that kind of flexibility and we, we might think uh, whether we're not moving into that kind of world again. Well, digital currencies definitely would that make possible and so there's almost no limitation to the number of currencies we could create. Uh, the, another, another subject I would like to cover in today's call is today the uh, interest in banking history. So the... Um, having studied banking history myself and my thesis was part of that. So I basically could find interest in banking history only twice in, in my career. That's when people wanted to celebrate the Jubilee. So they needed somebody who uh, knew the history of the bank and usually nobody knew that. And secondly, uh, during the, the, the great uh, financial crisis, 
when uh, suddenly everybody wanted to know um, what were the lessons of the banking crash in 1931 and what tools were used to stabilize the banks. And that subject that I knew by heart because it was my thesis. But in this, when we did this uh, workouts uh, in Germany with the big banks, I was the only person who knew about this. And it was quite interesting to see that we used very similar instruments then to solve uh, the, the, um, the, the problems in the banking system. Is, is your impression of how banking history is used different from mine? So, because you, you talk to a much bigger audience than I do. Well, well uh, yes, I mean, I, 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 I think you're right uh, that uh, you know, we started off this conversation by thinking about how the current interest in financial history is really driven in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, financial crisis. So um, you know, there's a tendency, I think, to think that uh, everything is great and uh, you don't need to worry too much about anything um, until a crisis happens. And then uh, when a crisis happens, uh, you go back and you look at these history books. And so I think it's fascinating that you said, uh, yes, I mean, this. Uh, you suddenly think of 1931 um, in uh, the middle of the 2000s or you, know, you can see it in Ben Bernanke's memoirs uh, on that weekend before Lehman collapsed. Uh, he says, uh, my mind went back to the Kreditanstalt crisis of May 1931. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, cr crises really do focus our attention in the same way, I think, probably um, w when we sense that the international diplomacy is getting fraught uh, when we think that the tensions are escalating in Ukraine or in Taiwan. Uh, we look back and we think of the way in which powers interacted in the 19th century or uh, before that even. Um, so uh, you know, I, I do, do sense that this is, this is a subject that is, is, is driven by interest in dysfunctionality and it increases when we see more dysfunctionality. So uh, yes, and of course the other aspect that you, you mentioned is, 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 is correct, um, uh, that uh, it's, it's sometimes driven by anniversaries and um, you, know, you, you can see a number of these anniversaries uh, that for instance, in the 2010s, uh, there were a lot of central banks that celebrated their 200th anniversary uh, because this was the, 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 the 200 years after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, you, you, you got a, a lot of institution creation in, uh, in, in new countries. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's worth thinking about the, the cycles that, that drive those commemorations as well, I think, uh, that they're not just entirely random, but uh, that they follow from big upheavals that disrupted the world over the past. If a young person asks you today, so uh, what are the interesting fields in, in banking history and what's worth my time for maybe a, a master uh, degree or, or a PhD to spend on, what would you recommend uh, that young person? I, th I think thinking about payment systems is, is, a, is a very, very promising area and one that was neglected for a long time because people thought of it as rather mechanical or rather boring. It was the kind of plumbing of, of finance and it doesn't look as if it has the kind of high political 
um, interests that, for instance, lending to governments or the question of debt renego renegotiation uh, has. Um, but uh, it's exactly that, that uh, question of how we deal with payments that combines the aspects that we've thought about uh, over, over the last uh, half hour or so, the, uh, the, the, the technical possibilities, uh, the technical possibilities, the legal possibilities, uh, the, the human resources that are involved. And then also what's the result of that? What happens when payment systems are improved? And what happens when payment systems don't work or break down? Um, that, 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 that I think would, would be one area that I would uh, really recommend. And I think it's, it's an open area for research. And uh, if a young archivist came to you and said, Professor James, what do I need to do uh, to serve you better, to make it easier for banking history to be written? What would you tell that person? Well, the, the, the question is really whether it's the young archivist or the, uh, the board of the bank that needs to think about the preservation of its, uh, its, its archives. I mean, I think they need to interact. Uh, and uh, the, the fundamental thing is, is really preservation, um, keeping things and not throwing them away because we, we don't know today quite what might be interesting in the future. Uh, you know, let me give you an anecdote. Uh, the first time that I went into the archive of the Bank of England, uh, was in the early 1990s. Uh, so it was just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the, um, the, the new Baltic republics were being created and they were interested in the question of how their gold had been kept uh, between the 1930s and, uh, and today. But uh, when I was working in this archive, I was sitting uh, in a room with uh, five, five or six uh, retired gentlemen or all men um, who, who'd worked in the bank before. And they were just um, going through records and throwing away records of the exchange control from the 1940s and 1950s. Because one of the big functions of the bank was to, to operate this exchange control system. And it generated a tremendous amount of paperwork. And uh, you know, the archivist said to me, uh, you know, we're throwing all this away and uh, you want to take a look at it. And I took a look at it and indeed it was terribly detailed and uh, I, you know, I couldn't see what anybody would ever want to do with that. Uh, so I didn't think that this was at all problematic. But now we know that we can digitize this kind of material. Uh, we can read it uh, by computer. Uh, we can abstract from it and you could have used this material. Uh, to get a fantastically detailed insight of the way in which the British economy worked. But nobody in the 1990s had the vision or the technical capacity to do that at that time. So, you know, that, 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 that's another recommendation, really, to, uh, to keep everything, um, and particularly in a digital world where the cost of storage is, is, uh, is, is, is gradually uh, being reduced to uh, infinitesimal uh, levels. Um, it's really worth keeping material and worrying later about how it's going to be used. Some of our uh, archivist members of our association started to keep uh, other artifacts, not just documents. They started to keep uh, mechanical accounting machines, uh, uh, the photos of how the bank works. Uh, uh, some keep even old desks. Um, uh, 
specimens of, uh, of, of work utensils. Um, what do you think about this? Um, we can't collect everything, but is anybody taking advantage of such collections? It's right. I think that there's an interest, increasing interest in just the material circumstances of uh, uh, life in previous periods. And, um, you know, having a sense of how that, that operated, uh, what people wore when they were working, uh, you know, the kind of thing that you can capture by photographs uh, is, 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 I think, uh, you know, obviously helpful. Um, and it, 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 it can give, if anybody is thinking of giving a rounded account of the past, it, it can really add very substantially uh, to, to the picture because, um, you know, I, I, I see the, the effort, a commendable effort to make history less dry and less remote um, and less a story of just data, but uh, a story of feeling and emotion as well. And uh, thinking about artifacts lends itself to the, the construction of that kind of historical picture, yes. I think one of the, the good things that our Secretary General Carmen did was her photo album, so she took most of the photos, her photo albums on, on bank buildings. And it was clearly visible that the facade of the bank building was basically a statement. This was a statement that uh, we are solid for a thousand years because they used Greek temples uh, and things like this. And, from documents, you would never be able to, to, to gauge that this type of marketing before marketing existed was actually employed by banks. Yes, that's right. I mean, it, and it, it is interesting how, I mean, you can see it if you uh, wander around the center of Philadelphia, how the early American banks were constructed very much on the model of the Parthenon. And, you know, the Greek temples were, of course, also places where the Greek civic community stored its 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 money perfect harold thank you very much for uh, that interesting time um i hope we can interest lots of people to study banking history and um yeah a, um, it was a wonderful podcast thank you for being available well thank you so much Hugo. it's great talking with you this was finance and history the eabh podcast eabh is an independent international non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.